Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Forbes' political economy editor, the editor of RealClareMarkets.com, and a senior economic advisor to Toreador Research and Training, John Tamney. John has published an excellent new book titled Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. You'll also probably remember John from a bunch of Fox News shows as well. John, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. John, why are progressive tax rates felt most strongly by lower income earners? They're felt most strongly because, let's face it, lower income earners can't move as readily away from high tax rates. If you're the Rolling Stones and the, and the British government says we're going to tax you at 83%, you can do as they did, and as I point out in the book, and move to France to make one of your best albums, Exile on Main Street. You can then go to the U.S. to, to finish off the album. Well, the poor who want to work in catering on the album, who want to work as sound engineers, who want to be part of the creation or the middle class who want to do that, they can't move with you. And so they feel it that way. But remember also, there are no companies and no jobs without investment first. Who's got the money to invest? The rich do. So when we tax the rich, we are necessarily reducing the wages and job opportunities of those who aren't rich. And I think it's interesting. You make a very important and I think subtle argument um, in context of, in particular, capital gains taxes, that entrepreneurs and quote unquote one percenters are pitted against the government for capital. And that's something that I don't think people often think about. So speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Think about what happens if the rich, for instance, buy a New York City or a Los Angeles or a Chicago or a Raleigh, North Carolina municipal bond. Any returns or earnings they get from it are free, are not taxed by the federal government, nor are they taxed by local governments. They are tax-free earnings. So if you support very often corrupt government regimes, forget about Democrat or Republican, you get to do so tax-free. Conversely, if you invest in the next Amazon or Microsoft or a Dell computer that will make our lives better, that will employ us, if you are lucky enough to get a return, the government will tax you at rates 20% and above for having the temerity to invest in the companies of the future that employ us and that make our our lives much better off. It's wildly perverse and hugely anti-economic growth. And you write, and I quote here, and I wanted to make a fine point of it, punishing taxes on the rich reduce investment in new ideas that enrich and empower others. And it's amazing when you think about how many more innovations, let's say, Steve Jobs would have bequeathed to us if billions of dollars of earnings from Apple had actually been left in the private sector in his hands rather than in the government's hands. Oh, absolutely. Let's always ask the question, which, whom do you prefer to invest the economy's resources? Do you want John Boehner, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid um, to invest them? Or would you prefer Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos? And, and we, we, it's important, and I talk about it a lot in the book, it's the seen versus the unseen. The seen is this abundant life we have. But the unseen are all the innovations that we've never gotten to joy, enjoy because the government has consumed so much capital. To the point of central planning and government using private funds to, generally speaking, enrich themselves politically, maybe the most perverse example of all is Arthurdale, which you talk about in the book. Tell us about Arthurdale. (laughs) 
Well, it's one of the very great but also sad stories of the Great Depression. This was a town created by government, created specifically by Eleanor Roosevelt, to help people who were not doing too well in West Virginia. On its face, it sounds really great. So they built this town, and among other things, they put up houses. But ultimately, it was a failed concept, and it's, it's a monument to the waste that is tautologically government spending. They built houses there that they sold to the to West Virginia residents at, for a cost of $700 up to $1,100. You could buy a very nice house. Well, guess how much those houses cost the federal government to make? $16,000. In the private sector, you could never fund that kind of waste. Uh, when, when you are overseeing that kind of waste, investors quickly pull it back so that you can destroy no, no more capital. This is the problem with federal spending is that there is no market discipline with holding back from all the things that are destroying our ability to advance. Except the voters, I guess. The voters are the ones that they are the consumers in the political marketplace. They are, and, and, and I, I think we have to say that if voters, if the markets are smart, we have to say the voters are smart. And I think historically, when government has overstepped its bounds in a substantial way, voters have smacked back. And that's one reason why I'd say I'm fairly optimistic about the future. I think what's happened under Republicans and Democrats over the last 15 years has awoken the electorate in ways profoundly that means they no longer trust either political party. They want gridlock. And I think that's a huge positive for future growth. One thing that people are aware of but they take a contrary view to what you put forth in this book. And, and your view actually sort of agrees with uh, what Dick Cheney said about deficits not mattering. And that's something that's uh, usually you wouldn't hear from someone who is a conservative or libertarian. So lay out your argument there. Well, we, I think we should lead with the simple truth that governments tautologically have no resources. Any dollar the government spends is a dollar that it extracted either through taxes or borrowing from the private sector first. So let's, let's, let's just be honest here. All government spending is by definition government spending. The question is how are you going to finance it? Are you going to tax it away or are you going to borrow it from willing investors? Or print. Or, or, or you could print uh, theoretically too, but, but the idea just between taxing and borrowing, there's really not a lot of difference there. One way or the other, we are allocating resources to Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner so that they can spend it. We're taking it from the private sector. So to me, whether it's deficit or not, the problem is that government is consuming the money. And in consuming the capital, the question always has to be the unseen. What did we lose out, out on because government was consuming so much of the, the resources that we created in the first place? There's an opportunity cost to, to government taking those funds from the private sector. Huge opportunity cost. Let's remember deficits, rich countries can run deficits. The U.S. is the richest country in the world. It can run massive deficits. Why can't it? Because it has taxing power over the most productive people on earth. Zimbabwe doesn't run deficits because the people there are not as productive. But the opportunity cost is what needs to be stressed here. And that, let's face it, just about every investment in Silicon Valley by definition fails. But we're looking for the 1% of investments, the scene, that succeed because those are the ones that transform our lives. And so what we have to ask ourselves is with the scene or the great phones we have, the amazing TVs, 
the, the healthcare advances, the unseen or all the experimentation that we never got to do because the government is consuming so much of what we produce. And that's what ought to horrify Americans, not whether the spending is, quote, deficit or, or taxed away. Why is inequality of wealth, or I would say inequality of outcomes, beneficial? Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. It always amazes me that people on our side try to fight about inequality. We should say this is a wonderful thing, that we live in a country where if you are productive, you will be rewarded in the marketplace. Now let's think about why we have inequality. We have it because we've got on our phones, we can watch television and do email and talk on cell phones that fit in our pocket. That was from Steve Jobs, the late billionaire. Uh, thanks to Jeff Bezos, we can order the world's plenty. Producers around the world are competing for our dollars because he created Amazon. What dominates our lives probably more than anything today? I would say it's the personal computer. Michael Dell is worth billions today because he made the computer accessible to all of us at increasingly lower prices. And so the question first has to be, would we prefer that Jobs, Bezos, and Dell had been layabouts? I think not. What we should say is we want a lot more of this thing they call inequality. And can we multiply? Can we get 30 Jeff Bezos, 30 Michael Dells? Because what they do makes our lives so much better and, in fact, shrinks the lifestyle gap. Another uh, sort of unpopular class in the private sector today is the folks that work in the financial sector. You talk about sort of two sides of the coin when it comes to finance. On the one hand, there's someone like a John Paulson. John Paulson invested betting against the housing market and ended up making billions of dollars off of it, creating a signal, a price signal to the market. And I'll let you elaborate on why that's, that's beneficial, what a trader does. On the other hand, or an investor does. On the other hand, there are those whose jobs solely exist because, for example, we went off the gold standard. So speak a little bit to the two sides of the coin in the financial sector. Well, you think about someone like Paulson and the, and the, common, the, the commentary is he got rich on the backs of, of, of poor people who weren't able to pay their mortgages and everything. Well, I think the first thing that probably needs to be said, well, what about all the people who lent them their money and didn't get it back because those mortgages defaulted? I don't think we talk enough about the savers who made homeownership possible and who make it possible. But in Paulson's case, he did the economy a massive favor. Let's face it, there had been overinvestment, overlending toward housing in, in 2006, 2007. Paulson did not believe that this, that this was a good thing, that it was going to end very well. And so his billions that he earned sent a very precious signal to the marketplace, seize investing more in housing, seize building more houses. And so what he did is he saved us from an exponentially more difficult downturn by making those billions. It signaled to people that you need to move your money elsewhere. And if the government hadn't stepped in and bailed out banks and homeowners who were over, overexposed to housing, the economy would be much better off today. Another argument that folks at the Federal Reserve, for example, folks in Treasury, et cetera, will make uh, and it's bipartisan on uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations, is that consumption is a good thing. And people always talk about consumption is 70% of our economy. So slay those fallacies for us. <laughs> consumption is 0% of our economy. It's always production. If you don't believe that, decide one day that you're just going to consume and do nothing else. If so, you will very quickly die an unclothed, unfed death. You must produce first in order to consume. And so it is production 
that drives the economy forward. And so the, when, when you think about, they say, the economists love to say, we want everyone to consume, consume, consume. Well, how are we more productive? We're productive precisely because people save and their savings flow toward more productive ways to build cars, to manufacture computers. It is thanks to savings that we enjoy cell phones that we can watch TV on, that we increasingly ha have a good chance of winning the battle against cancer, that we get to drive cars that, that, that will in, at some point dr uh, drive us around. That's because of savings. Savings are what power the economy forward. Consumption is the easy part. We all want to consume. But saving is what allows us to eventually consume. You talk about self-driving cars, and I'm sure we'll see all sorts of other innovations. There are a lot of reports out there indicating that 25 or 50 percent of jobs are simply going to go away over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. Why shouldn't we fear that? Oh, we should love that. Uh, think about it. It's in, it's in poorer countries where everyone has to work. And the way you have to think about this is to think about an economy is not a blob. It's just a collection of individuals. And we have to ask ourselves, what makes us as individuals better off? Are we better off because we get to drive cars? Are we better off because we have cell phones? Are we better off because we have computers, because we can go to ATMs, because we can go to clothing stores to buy clothes? We are. All of those innovations are easily some of the biggest job destroyers in history. The tractor it was a massive job destroyer. If we want to create jobs that simple, let's just abolish the tractor, the car, and the computer. We would have lots of jobs, but Americans would be miserable and live lives of unrelenting drudgery. If you look at economic advancement, it's a function of always destroying unnecessary work so that we can offer up our labor to more and better things, more productive things. Most Americans used to be farmers. What a depressed, deprived life that was. Now most Americans don't have to work in the farm. That didn't lead them to the bread lines. All it did is it made them made it possible for them to do the work that most suits their skills. Another fallacy out there that I think you make a really convincing case about is almost every major company has to deal with antitrust regulations. And even free market economists differ on whether or not there can or cannot be a monopoly. You argue that basically a monopoly cannot ever exist. At least it can only exist for a very short period of time before someone comes along and knocks it off. So delve, a little, delve into that a little bit and talk about Rockefeller. Well, okay, let's think about this. If you're going into business and you, and you need an investor to go into business, you better be searching for monopoly. That's a good idea. And that's good for the marketplace because if you find monopoly profits, that signals that you found an unmet need that the market wasn't taken care of. Now, what we find, of course, is that monopoly, of course, attracts competition. John D. Rockefeller at one point dominated the market uh, for kerosene almost completely. Now, did he jack up prices in doing that? Oh, my gosh, he did the exact opposite. Because if you keep prices too high, someone will come in and take away your market share. Look at, look at, look at the oil that powered the cars that, that made life in the U.S. and the world so much better. Rockefeller at one point dominated much of that market, but by the time antitrust officials got, got to him and broke, needlessly broke up Standard Oil, he had competition from around the world. His market share was dwindling, but in the process of this, he kept lowering prices as he built his market share. No one raises prices in a free market. They can't because if they were to, they would, they would very quickly be put out of business. What uh, do you want readers to take away from your book? with respect to money. I, I think that this is one of the most elegant arguments 
made when it comes to money as a measuring stick. So enlighten us. Well, that's all money is. Money is not wealth. You cannot eat your dollars. If you take your dollars to a desert island, your money will not do anything for you. All money is is a way that we facilitate the exchange of the wealth we create with others. And so I like people to think about this, take bringing back to first principles. If imagine what life would be like for a chef of, of buffalo wings or, or a builder of a house or an NFL GM, if the length of a second, minute, or foot it changed all the time. If so, there'd be a lot of inedible food out there. There'd be a lot of asymmetric houses. There'd be leaning towers of Pisa around the world. And there'd be a lot of slow NFL draft picks. We're precisely better in the kitchen. We're better at building houses. We're better in sports because we can measure exactly the people we're looking to hire, the things we're doing. Money is that too, yet since 1971, we've robbed it of its essential purpose, which is a measure of the wealth that we're actually creating. And the result is, again, an unseen. What have we lost thanks to the dollar floating and driving all sorts of investment into things that wouldn't take place precisely because people don't know what a dollar is? Going back to Wall Street, you and I both love Wall Street. Look at all the great, talented people that have gone to Wall Street to trade floating currencies. Well, currencies shouldn't float in value. They should be stable in value. That's, that's why they were created in the first place. And so how many cancer cures? How many innovations that would make it possible for us to fly around in our own private jets? How many amazing cars? How many, how many great cultural innovations never took place because so many talented people migrated to the chaos created by floating money? It's incalculable what we've lost over the last 40 years. So floating money is one tax, effectively, on wealth. Uh, if, if, if you're printing money and you're devaluing it, that's a tax. Regulation ultimately serves as a tax and it creates barriers to entry. There are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs, maybe millions of jobs, created as a result of this metastasization of government. How much in wealth and productivity do we lose every year as a result of this? It's, it's so large it would be almost nearly impossible to calculate, but thinking about those two things, thinking about the persistent devaluation of money over the last 40 years, let's remember no companies and no jobs without investment first. When investors invest, what are they doing? They are buying dollars in the future. So when government is devaluing our dollars, what it's doing is reducing the creation of companies and the jobs those companies create. When government devalues, it by definition is reducing opportunity in the U.S. economy, not to mention what, the innovations that never took place because of the devaluation. Thinking about regulation in a broad sense, it cannot work. Don't, it's not about it might work, it cannot work. Think back to banking in 2008. We're talking about easily the most regulated sector in the United States, yet those regulators didn't have a clue about the problems within the banks. The problem, of course, with all this is that banks, drug makers, you name it, they spend enormous amounts of time complying with the regulations that by definition cannot work. And so you have to ask yourself, once again, what about all the innovation that never took place? What about all the exciting jobs that were never created? What Again, what about the cancer cures that we've not yet seen? The private jets that would take us anywhere, probably without a pilot. The driverless cars, precisely because of all this regulation and unstable money. It has been a tragedy for all Americans and for the world, for that matter. How do you explain that 
today, uh, if you were to look at, for example, treasury bonds, that in effect, you get a negative real rate of return. Given how profligate the government is, all of the regulations and all of the other issues, how is it that there's such great demand to hold this debt in what looks like potentially a sinking empire? Well, I would, I would first of all say I think it is a signal, A, that there's still a lot of worry around the world about economic growth, so people want just generally general safety. But I would add I don't for a second buy the idea of an American, America in decline. Um, and people have been betting against the United States since before the U.S. was the United States. Ben Franklin used to talk about people who would walk up to him on the streets of Philadelphia and say, this nation is over with. Well, no, no, no. Americans keep coming back. I say the reason we keep coming back is because we are a nation of immigrants. We are a nation that has attracted the strivers of the world, people who risked everything to come to the United States. And with that, you get a lot of entrepreneurs. And so I would argue I'm not defending the deficits. I'm a libertarian. I want greatly reduced government spending. But I think those deficits, what they ultimately signal is the markets, which are very wise, think that the U.S. US's best days are ahead of it, and they're ahead of it in a very, very big way. So frequently we end these interviews on a negative note, so we'll end it on a positive note this time. The name of the book is Popular Economics, and the author who we've been speaking with is John Tamney. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com theblazebooks, and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten.